Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. I remember praying for an unsaved family member and wondering, Lord, why don't you save them? I wonder if you've ever had that same thought. God, why don't you save my father or my sister or my brother or my neighbor or someone in my life that I've been praying for and witnessing to? Sometimes our personal expectations about how God works and what He does need to be rearranged. What we expect of God, what we demand from God, and what He's actually like are different. I demand that God convert this person right now. And while I have good intentions, my pride is the problem because I say to God, you must convert them. Well, this morning I want to consider what is God really like? What are our expectations for God? This morning we want to endeavor to answer the question, how does the Lord work? And in order to do that, in our text today, we're going to find four answers. Number one, God delivers. That's going to be verses one to three. Number two, God heals. That's verses four to eight. Number three, God offends. That's verses nine to 14. And number four, God saves, verses 15 to 19. Now, I come from a congregation of neurotic note takers. And so if you like taking notes, that's our outline. So I'm just going to repeat it so you get it down. Number one, God delivers, that's verses 1 to 3. Number 2, God heals, that's verses 4 to 8. Number 3, God offends, that's verses 9 to 14. And then number 4, God saves, that's verses 15 to 19. Now, I, I like giving a thesis sentence, just a summary of the whole thing in just a sentence or two. So here's the whole sermon in just two sentences. God sovereignly delivers the most unlikely of people. A prideful Syrian warrior is healed and converted so the Lord might be glorified. So we're dropping in the middle of a book into 2 Kings. So I just want to give a quick summary of 1 and 2 Kings. It's about the kings of Israel and Judah. And we start with the United Kingdom under Solomon. That's 1 Kings chapter 1 to 11. But then the nation splits into two. And then the generation after generation after generation of wicked kings show up in both Israel and Judah, and they revolt against the Lord. And as these faithless kings turn away from the Lord, so also does the nation follow suit. First and second kings teach us about the failure of human leadership when it turns away from the Lord. No earthly king can replace the Lord. Entering into this mess, the Lord sends two prophets, Elijah and then his successor, Elisha. They confront the monarchs and call God's people back to him. And the prophets are messengers of God's word to God's people. The men of faith who stand in stark contrast to the faithless kings that characterize Israel and Judah. It's Israel's rejection and disobedience of God and his prophets that result in the two nations that fall into exile. So that leads us to point number one. 
God sovereignly delivers. Looks down there at verse 1 to 3. So in our story, begins in verse 1 with Naaman, who you see there says is a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And then the narrator pours out this list of accolades describing Naaman. There in verse 1, he was a great man with his master and highly favored. So the master here is describing the king of Syria, who thought highly of his great commander and showed great favor to him. And then you also see there, he's a man of valor, which is an Old Testament term to mean he probably had great wealth, and he also was a very courageous warrior. So prestige, greatness, greatly favored, and all kinds of other things characterized Naaman, this great commander. Now, the reason for Naaman's success is given there in verse 1. Look at it. It says, because by the Lord had given victory, by Naaman, the Lord had given victory in Syria. Now, victory here in the Hebrew is actually literally deliverance or salvation. Naaman's military accomplishments came because the Lord had granted it. Not a single good thing comes to Naaman or Syria apart from the Lord's sovereign hand. Though nations rage and foreign leaders mock the Lord, think of Psalm 2, the Lord shows great kindness to them. But notice the end of verse 1. It says, but he was a leper. After all the accolades, all the accomplishments that the narrator gives us about Naaman, the description lands like a thud. Wait, the greatest commander in all of Syria was a leper. A leper, really? This prestigious and great leader was a leper. The narrator wants us to feel the dilemma. The great man had an incurable skin disease. And, you know, like any good narrator that sets up a plot for you in a good storyline, the dilemma begins at the beginning. So you begin to understand what the problem is that needs to be solved. The dilemma at the very beginning of the story is the prestigious leader, com this commander, needed to be healed. But how would that happen? Sadly, the answer is going to be Naaman couldn't fix his problem on his own. And so he needed to look elsewhere. This is probably not modern-day leprosy, as in, a.k.a. Hansen's disease, because what you'll see at the end of the chapter, Gehaziah, who is Elisha's servant, gets leprosy, and he has lesions that are white as snow, it says at verse 27. Modern-day Hansen's disease doesn't have white lesions. But whatever this is, we know that Naaman has some kind of psoriasis or scabies or skin disease. Now look there, verse 2. Note the account of a nameless Israelite girl who was taken by the Syrians during the raid and brought to work for the as a servant for Naaman's wife. She was ripped from her homeland and lived a life of servitude to this powerful military family. And then verse 3. Yet even... In these tragic circumstances, the girl cared for the well-being of her master. She told the mistress that if Naaman were go to the prophet in Israel, he would be healed. Naaman had no cure for his skin disease. When he heard the idea, look what he does. He jumps on it because he was desperate for a cure. 
Now think about this. Ironically, the real hero of the story is not the valiant, mighty commander. It's this nameless servant girl, this little girl taken into slavery who believed there was a sovereign God who could work through the prophet in Israel to heal her master. Naaman had great power. He had great prestige. He had great wealth. But she had what he seemed to need most, an answer to his skin disease. Now, there are two deliverances we see in these first three verses. Uh, the, the military one, where God delivers the foreign nations into Naaman's hands as he grants victory to Naaman. But the more personal deliverance, God uses a personal tragedy of this nameless girl to sovereignly bring hope to a prideful pagan military commander. Isn't that the way God often works? He uses the least among us. He uses the common folk. He uses the lowly. He uses the fools of this world to shame the wise, the strong, and the powerful. Why is that? Because he wants to show who really is in charge. He wants to show that he's in charge of this whole thing. Though Naaman was used to lead the Syrian army to conquer foreign nations, his own deliverance would come at the hands of a servant girl that was taken by his own army. The Lord often orchestrates events to bring unbelievers to saving faith and to bring himself glory through those circumstances. God did this at great cost to this young lady's life. It's a tragedy that she was ripped from her home, taken from her parents, taken from the life that she knew. And yet, what we'll see in the end is that God uses the tragedy of this little believing girl to save the greatest military commander in that entire land. The Lord put the little girl with faith in this pagan home so that Naaman might not only be healed, but that he might believe. Have you ever looked at a tragedy and on its own terms said, why God? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to our family? Why do we have to go through this? Why do you make us suffer like this? Why do we have to go through these hard things? Yet I wonder if we stand in glory and we're able to see the connection, we'd see the connection like this narrator lays out for us. We'll see the tragedy, we'll see the suffering, but then we'd also see God's eternal plans. We get a sneak peek at all of that in this story. Now, we know God works for the good of those who love Him, Romans 8.28, but we don't always see what He's doing. Sometimes we do see He gives us sight to see what's going on, but a lot of times we don't. A lot of times we just don't understand, God, what are you doing right now? But He works whatever He needs to, to accomplish His will. I'm confident that when we get to glory, you're going to say, God, you really did that. God, wait, you were, you were doing that? I couldn't tell. You mean you, you did this to that person and you moved this around and you changed this and you brought that hard thing to us and you made us go through this so that you could be glorified? 
We'll look at the hard things that we faced in this life, and we'll probably didn't realize the good that God was doing behind it all. I often feel like as a parent, when, when I'm talking to my kids about the sacrifices that we make that our children never see. Well, there was one night where my daughter was sitting at the counter, and she looked at my wife and I and said, you guys probably don't do that much after we go to bed, do you? And I'm looking at a kitchen that was a wreck, and I said, who cleans up the kitchen after you go to bed? It doesn't just magically appear clean in the morning. Well, kids, you know, your parents work for your good all the time. It's a, it's a good thing for you to understand that they're sacrificing for you. And so today, when you get home, you should ask them over lunch, what are some of the sacrifices you make for me that I don't even realize? <laughs> That's right. Let me hear another amen. <laughs> ask your mom and dad the sacrifices they make. But then talk about what is God like? Because that's what God is like. He's working for your good all the time. And you just don't even realize it. I remember our first son who chose Purdue, sorry, not A&M. <laughs> and he, uh, he, he, when he was an infant, and I was a brand new dad, I remember those nights of being up in the middle of the night, you know, rocking him back to sleep changing a diaper, feeding a bottle, all the things you do as a brand new parent. And I don't know what was going on, but in the middle of the night one night, as I'm rocking him back to sleep, it occurred to me, my mom did all this for me. She did all of this when I was a wee little baby. So the next morning after breakfast, I call her and said, did you do all of this for me? And my sweet 80-year-old mom said, of course I did. I did all this because I love you. Well, God sovereignly orchestrates Naaman's deliverance using this nameless, believing Israelite girl. And he shows that he's in charge of nations, military commanders, and every aspect of our life. That brings us to point number two. Only God heals. Only God heals. That's verses four to eight. Through the faithless response of the Israel's king, we come to see, by contrast, what God is like. Unlike the king, God can do the impossible, which is resurrect the dead and heal leprosy. Look there, verse 4. Naaman goes to the king of Syria and tells him what the Israelite girl did, what she said to him. Verse 5, the king quickly issues a diplomatic letter to the king of Israel. My presumption is that the Syrian king thinks that the prophet, for is prophet of Israel actually basically answers to the king of Israel. That's why the letter's written to the king of Israel. So he goes straight to the top, asking the king of Israel to take care of this matter. Then you look there at the second half of verse 5. Naaman's loaded up with silver and gold and clothing by the Syrian king. With greatness and goods and a diplomatic letter, Naaman's prepared to cut through the Washington, D.C. red tape and buy a, a faith healing. Verse 6, he hands over the letter to the Israelite king. And we see what it says. The Syrian king asked the Israelite king to make sure Naaman is healed of leprosy. But look there, verse 7. The Israelite king reads the letter and he tears his clothes, which means he's fearful and he's overwhelmed. The king knows that he's not God. So look, what does he say? 
Am I God? Am I God? He knows he's not God in two senses. Only God can kill, uh, only God can both kill and resurrect. The king can't bring someone back to life after they died. No human can resurrect the dead. So forget about all those creepy zombie movies you watch. <laughs> Nothing comes back to life apart from God's power. The other sense in which he knows he's not God is that only God can cure the leprosy. The Israelite king is not a faith healer. Only the Lord can do the impossible, which is heal Naaman's leprosy. Now you see there, verse 7, unlike the believing servant girl, the king doesn't have faith. His fear of the situation quickly overtakes him. It's a stark contrast between the two. Rather than reading this letter with eyes of faith, the king reads it as an act of hostility. He's thinking like a king. He's thinking politically. He sees this as an attempt by Syria to pick a fight with Israel by asking the king to do the impossible for a key military commander of Syria. So imagine if President Biden were to send a five-star general to the su supreme leader of North Korea, and he asked the supreme leader of North Korea, please heal the skin disease of this U.S. general. Well, how would the, U the supreme leader of North Korea feel? <laughs> that would be an unusual request for him. Verse 8, Elisha hears that the king has torn his clothes over this international matter. And so he takes initiative with the king. The faithless king doesn't seek out the prophet. So Elijah asks him, why have you torn your clothes? Why are you getting so worked up over this? The man of God, the prophet, knows that God can heal and God can resurrect. And that God can use him, Elijah, to bring a miracle of healing. So he says, send him to me so that he might know there is a prophet in Israel. This fearful Israelite king reacts to the diplomatic request. He thinks politically, not with eyes of faith. He knows he's not God, that he can't do the impossible. Rather than responding, oh no, what am I going to do? I can't do this. He should have responded like the faith-filled servant girl who says, I know God can do anything. I know God can heal. I know God can heal this man. Who are you more like? Just think about this for a moment. Are you like that faith-filled servant girl? Or are you like the fearful king? Who are you more like? In a difficult moment, do you have eyes of faith to see what God is doing? Or do you forget God and get caught up with your fears? Are you fearful because you have a child who's not converted? Are you confused because you got fired from your job? Are you wrestling with doubt because you face some kind of terminal sickness, whether that's cancer or some kind of chronic illness? Are you worried because your marriage is not going so well and it's been difficult for a long time? Are you disappointed because the, the, the guy or the gal you're hoping to get married to broke up with you? Whatever your problem is this morning, whatever the issue is, are you thinking through eyes of faith or are you scared and forgetting about God? Which one is you today?
fear and doubt can take over when we face hard things. We're more like the faithless king than we want to admit. But by God's grace, we want to respond to these difficulties in life with eyes of faith. Sally was fearful because her daughter was not converted, but her husband, Tom, would say, we must be faithful as parents and trust the Lord. And Donald had gotten fired from his job, and his father, Mark, would call him and say, the Lord, son, the Lord will take care of you. Don't be scared. He will take care of you. And Jenny faced cancer, and she got really lost and concerned because she thought she was going to lose her life. And she often would say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to go through this? And yet her best friend Shirley would say, hold on, God has not abandoned you. How are you responding to hard things? Faithful or fearful? Are you turning to Christ? Because it's in Christ alone our hope is found. It's in Christ we put our faith and Christ can take us through the worst of storms, through the worst of troubles. So, my friend, don't be scared. When we're fearful, we forget about God and turn our back on Him in those hard situations. And yet, what what do we want? We want to anchor in a Savior who can take us through the hardest of things. So, the hero of the story is this nameless girl who displays this life of faith. She turns out to be the hero for us, a nameless hero who points us directly to the cross and says, trust your Savior. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And that brings us to point number three. God offends our pride and expectations for our good. That's verses 9 through 14. Look at verse 9. Naaman brings an entire entourage, horses, and chariots to Elijah's neighborhood. Now, just picture the neighbors peering out their windows going, What's the Syrian commander doing at Elijah's front yard? Why'd he pull up there? What's going on? (laughs) Naaman stands at Elijah's front door, and then verse 10, you see there, rather than Elijah coming to the door, he sends a messenger that says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. And verse 11, look at Naaman's reaction. He quickly became angry, and he stomped off, and he says, I thought that he would surely come out to me. Pay attention to those last two words, to me. Oh, how quickly our pride is offended. Notice those last two words. This no-good prophet didn't even have the decency to come to the door. He sent his lowly messenger to come tell me what I should do. Have you ever acted like Naaman? You ever have your pride offended by something that someone did? If so, you're thinking much more highly of yourself than you deserve. I like what Dale Ralph Davis reminds us. God's ways humble our pride. He may not make a fuss over you. Naaman was a prestigious military leader, and he expected the prophet to cater to his greatness. But alas, Elisha didn't. Listen to Naaman's entire response. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me 
and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over this place and cure the leper. That's verse 11. Naaman came loaded up with goods to buy a healing or at least a dazzling show with waving hands. He expected God to deliver something spectacular. And instead, what did he get? Meager instructions to wash himself in the river from the prophet's servant. You're not very different than Naaman, are you? You expect things from God, and when he doesn't deliver in the way you expect it, you're disappointed with God, aren't you? Why didn't you convert my son? Why is my marriage so hard? Why do I have to go through this illness? Why did I fail that grade? Why is my family not doing well? Why am I sick all of the time? On and on and on, those why questions go. We come to God and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why does my life have to be like this? And yet what we come to realize, our pride is offended. Check your pride. Be really careful about your pride. We're capable of turning God into a genie. And, you know, you, you shine the little bottle and expect God to do whatever you ask of Him. You expect Him to deliver when you need it the most. Pride ruins our relationship with the Lord. Christ-like humility, think Philippians chapter 2, not pride, will, pray, will pave your growth and your sanctification. It'll, it'll help you to grow in love with the Lord. Repent of the pride that demands that God act like a genie. Let God be God and humble yourself before Him. Look there, verse 12. As Naaman continues his rant, you see a bit of the Syrian nationalistic pride. Aren't the rivers in my country better than the rivers of Israel? Did I have to come all this way into this mangy Israelite river? Elisha treated Naaman as he deserved, not as a great military commander, but as a leper. And Naaman didn't like it at all. And as a leper, what Naaman needed was not just a healing, but to be clean. Now, you see in verses 10 to 14, the words wash and be clean are repeated four times to put emphasis on that. Naaman was prepared to pay for a great faith healing show with arms waving and great fanfare, but what he got was this simple cleansing ritual. He was to go to the river and wash himself seven times. Now, what do you expect of God? And are they wrong expectations? This cleansing act in the Jordan, far from the prophet or anyone else, showed that the Lord Almighty was in charge. It was God who was going to heal Naaman. It was God who was in charge of this whole thing. It was God who was finally going to help him to see who's in charge of the entire universe. No other person in all the earth had the power to bring Naaman both healing and cleansing. But this is not what Naaman expected or pridefully what he wanted. So at the end of verse 12, he said, verse 12, it says, he turned and went away in rage. But look at verse 13. Yet again, a nameless servant comes to the rescue. 
the servant chides Naaman. He says, this is a great idea that the prophet has given you. All Elisha said was wash and be clean. So why not do it? In other words, you've been looking for a solution, boss, for a long time for your skin disease. Elisha gave you this simple cleansing ritual. Go wash in the river seven times. Now, boss, I know this is not complicated. It's pretty simple. Boss, why don't you just go ahead and try it? We came all this way from Israel. Let's just go ahead and Syria. Let's go ahead and try it. The nameless servant is trying to coax his boss lovingly to follow what Elijah's messenger had suggested. In verse 14, Naaman listens to the servant. He goes and dips himself in the Jordan seven times. But note what the, the, the phrase in the text. It's really important. It says, according to the word of the man of God. The narrator in 1st and 2nd Kings often uses this phrase or something like it. The emphasis is on obedience to God's Word, according to the Word of the man of God. God uses His Word for our good, and we pridefully choose to do things on our own. We don't submit ourselves to the Word. God knows what's best for you. In fact, He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. And what does He do? He speaks to you in His Word. And what's asked of us is to submit ourselves to it and obey it. There should never be any doubt about that God knows us best and He knows what we need. So are you obeying God's Word? Or are you slugging through this life on your own? Imagine my son, blindfolded, standing on the edge of a cliff. He's at the very edge, about to drop in. And if I said to him, come back to me, don't take another step, it would be, dis- it would be dangerous if he disobeyed me. It's the exact same thing for us. God speaks to us through his word. And for you to just turn your back on him, not submit yourself to the word, and disobey him, It's dangerous for you spiritually. Listen to God's Word. Even when the teacher seems unimpressive, don't tune him out, even if he's young and inexperienced. Listen to God's Word. Listen to what He says. Now, kids and teenagers, don't ignore your parents' instructions, especially when they teach you from God's Word, even even if you don't feel like they get your situation. Or husbands, don't turn a deaf ear to your wife's counsel when she points you to the Word. And for everyone, don't fail to listen to God's simple instructions for our our life. Far too often, we're listening to the culture and all the worldly wisdom that's out there when God offers us simple instructions for our own life through His Word. Listen to God's Word, regardless of what He says or whom He sends to share it with you. In verse 14, we see that the promise of the prophet is fulfilled. Naaman's healed. His flesh is restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. God offered the pride, offends the pride and upends the expectations of this great military leader to humble him for his good. So also he does for us. And that brings us finally to point number four. God saves. That's verses 15 to 19. You know, of the the few stories of the Old Testament that are put in children's story Bibles, this is clearly one of the favorites. 
you know, you, you read any story Bible, usually Naaman's healing is in the, that, that storybook. But what, what's a tragedy is they often stop at where I just left off. He's clean, story done, he goes home. But it misses the best and most important part of the story. Because the last part of the story is when Naaman shows that he's come to faith in the Lord. The best part is Naaman, the pagan military ruler, is converted. Look at verse 15. He returns to Elijah with his entourage and stands before the prophet and declares his allegiance to God alone. There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. Uh, uh, what a good thing to do to gather with God's people on a Sunday morning here at New Life Church. Thank you for coming and joining us for this service. You might not realize that this story is actually all about you. You didn't expect a church and having a story that involves a pagan, an unbelieving person as the main character in the story. You may not realize that God actually has a heart for you. He wants you to know what it means to trust in Him. Now, like most people, you have commitments, things that you're committed to, your job, your family, even, even yourself, and that like Naaman, you probably struggle with pride, you probably have hard things going on in your life, and yet your deepest need is not relief from your troubles, it's forgiveness. We're, we're all sinners, that means we've all rebelled against God, we've gone our own way. We've chosen to do what we think is best. We turn our backs on the God of the universe and say, I can do this on my own. In pride, we say, I can handle this. And this is the, the miracle of the gospel, that God saw us in our prideful selves and sent His Son to die for prideful people like you and me. And He says, it doesn't matter that you've run against me. I love you so much that I'm going to send my Son to die on a cross for your sins. So what better day than today to come to terms with God and come to understand that He sent His Son for you? So whoever you are here today, if you struggle with pride and have been unwilling to come to God, what better day than today and say, God, I'm going to put down my pride and come to you and humbly ask for help because your Son is more than sufficient for what I need because your Son offers me forgiveness for all of my sins. Brother and sister, there's hope in Christ. And if you haven't taken a step towards Christ today, today's the day. Today's the day. Don't wait. Today's the day where you can ask God for forgiveness and find hope in Him in a way that you've never done before in your life. Why not commit your life today to Christ and find forgiveness in Him? Now look at verse 15. Naaman offers Elijah a present. <laughs> and what does the prophet do? He refuses to show just what happened is not a prosperity gospel, Benny Hinn style, faith healing. There's no pay for miracles. Elijah swears by the Lord that he won't take Naaman's gift. Well, why? <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, it's just a nice little gesture. Why does it matter? And yet, there's a deeply theological reason behind this. Elijah wants Naaman to know God is a God of grace. You don't pay for this kind of hope. You don't pay for this kind of grace. 
because it's freely given. God freely pardons. He freely heals. He freely forgives. He freely reconciles. And He freely restores because of His own love and His own mercy, not because of anything that we could do. That's the good news for Naaman. He can't earn this. And so the prophet very kindly says, I will not take the gift. Verse 17, Naaman asks Elijah if he can bring back two mules loads of dirt from Israel so he can establish his own place of worship in Syria. Naaman wanted to establish an outpost of worship for the Lord in the midst of a wicked nation that was full of false gods. Naaman was saying, I'm committed to following the Lord back in my homeland where evil reigns and false gods abound, where no one else loves the Lord. And if you think about that declaration, that should be our declaration too, right? In a culture that is more and more antithetical to Christians, our declaration would be no matter how hostile things are, we're going to live by faith. We're, we're going to live clearly on the Lord and on His Word. And it doesn't matter how hard things get or how angry the culture is at Christians, we're going to declare we're going to be faithful. Now, that doesn't mean you need to grab two piles of dirt, stick it in the back of your car, and bring it home. <laughs> that, that's not the point of this illustration here. The point is, no matter what your circumstance, be faithful, trust the Lord, and live as a witness to those around you. Verse 18, Naaman asks Elisha for a pardon. Part of his job was helping and accompanying the king into the house of Ramon who is Syrian's version of a false god. The king leans on Naaman as he bows, and so also Naaman bows with the king. And you might say, but, but this guy is converted apparently. What, what, why does he go worship this false god with the Syrian king? Well, two quick thoughts on this. Naaman's sensitivity to this dilemma and his request for the pardon in advance is further evidence that he's converted. If he wasn't converted, he wouldn't care. But it shows now a, a conscience that's sensitive to the things of the Lord. The other thing you notice there, his newfound humility. Five times in verses 15 to 18, right there, what's the label given to him? He's called a servant. This prideful military ruler had been humbled by God. When you align your life with God, it should pick your pride and humble you. Pride never should persist in the presence of a holy God. If you're a believer, let this be a warning to you. Check your pride today. And, you know, at lunch today, have conversations and be honest with others. This is where I think I'm prideful in my life. Confess that to someone else. Because that's, that's the road of humility that begins to help you deal with your own pride. And then verse 19. Naaman requests is granted. Elijah pardons Naaman. Well, we should conclude. Naaman sought a healing for his skin disease, and he got it. But the greatest change was not his external cleansing, but his heart change. This prideful, famous warrior became a humble, God-fearing servant. Think of Joel chapter 2, verse 13. The prophet tells us to rend, that is, give over our hearts and not our garments. 
By the end of the story, Naaman comes to know something about what God is really like. Now, take a moment and think for yourself. Who, who, who are you today? Are you the believing servant girl? Or are you the panicking, fearful Israelite king? Are you the prideful military commander? Or are you the new convert who's willing to worship the Lord no matter how difficult the circumstances? Jesus came to die for sinners like you and me. The gospel changes us from inside out. It, it, it completely turns around our life to give us hope in Him so that we don't have to live as prideful people anymore. We don't have to live as selfish people anymore. Glory be to God that He sent His Son for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that You sent Your Son for us, that our lives could be changed through Him. And so help us, help us today to know Your Son, to be forgiven by Him, and to trust Him with our life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.